Gracias. Double Elvis. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Bob Dylan, Robert Allen Zimmerman, a middle-class oracle from the bleak great north of Hibbing, Minnesota, the son of a furniture and appliance salesman, a Delphic enigma with a Midwestern twang, the mumbling voice of a generation, Dylan. He hit the scene in 1962 with that name. Some said it was a nod to Dylan Thomas, but Bob denied it. A preternatural writer who heralded the zeitgeist in his cutting clarion voice. He put a fresh spin on folk before picking up an electric guitar at the Newport Folk Festival in the summer of 65, turning music inside out and making rock and roll capital I important. From folk hero to counterculture icon in the span of three years. But this story isn't about Bob Dylan. This is about Carolyn Dennis, the backup singer, the gospel powerhouse, the actress, Dylan's secret second wife and the mother of his daughter, Desiree, a woman shrouded in mystery even today, the performer who never craved the attention. This story is about a girl. Carolyn Dennis returned from a tour of South America to find a message from a friend about another potential job, singing backup for some pop star she'd never heard of. She got on the phone with her musicians' union. Who is Bob Dylan, she asked them. I got a call. They want me to come and audition for this guy named Bob Dylan. Who is he? Carolyn wasn't a model like Dylan's first wife, Sarah Lowndes. She wasn't a glamorous New York socialite like his rumored paramour, Edie Sedgwick. And she wasn't a folksy, king-making songbird like one-time girlfriend Joan Baez. She was no figment of the bohemian counterculture. No. Carolyn Yvonne Dennis, sometimes known as Carol, came from about as far from Minnesota or Manhattan as it gets, deep in Missouri in 1954. Carolyn's mom, Madeline Quebec, was a singer with Ray Charles' backing group, the Raylettes. She was a gospel singer, too. She cut some singles, including Will I Ever Get Back Home, written by Ray and featuring the genius himself on keys. And so Carolyn grew up singing deep soul gospel. She landed a gig singing with the decidedly non-counterculture Burt Bacharach, the smooth master of pop and composer of easy-listening confections like Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head and I'll Never Fall in Love Again. Bacharach was a big name, a successful and well-respected songwriter. Getting on the road with him was a good opportunity. 
Who knew where that road could lead? Then she got the call that would change her life. As embarrassing as it might be, she confessed, I didn't know who Bob Dylan was because my young life had been so reclusive and so sheltered. Her union rep on the other end of her guileless phone call set her straight about one of the biggest names in music. This was 1978. She didn't know Dylan, didn't really need to know Dylan, but he needed her. By that time, he was no longer the scruffy troubadour or the electric revolutionary. He was Dylan the unknowable god, a repository for everyone else's projections, a 60 survivor and a hollow poet looking for solid footing beyond the myths that had cropped up in his name. The decade that made him was a faded memory. He was on his own, not a complete unknown, but definitely without a home. He and Sarah had split up in 1977. The whole bitter disintegration was chronicled on his classic Blood on the Tracks album, as well as in the tabloids. What was left was a reflective Dylan, a different Dylan than any version fans had known before. In transition, in a custody battle over his kids, scrambling to finish his debut as a film director, and on the brink of converting to Christianity. And he was out of money. So he set out on what he called his alimony tour. Rolling Stone panned it. They called it soulless and bloated. They said his band seemed like it was on loan from Neil Diamond, which was actually kind of what he'd been after. They slammed his next album too, Street Legal, which was dominated by female backing vocalists and R&B inspired horns. They said it sounded utterly fake. He needed something real. The album was a hit with fans though, whose buying power made it go gold. But even they were getting a little uncertain about their hero. People were used to Dylan's mercurial and evolving nature. Folky Dylan, electric Dylan, acid Dylan, country Dylan, divorced Dylan. It was part of the man's appeal. But one thing they were not ready for was Dylan the preacher. There's only two kinds of people, he told the crowd in Arizona. There's saved people and there's lost people. Jesus is the Lord. Every knee shall bow to him. Dylan wasn't just going Christian. He was going full evangelical. Word was that he'd had a religious experience. A vision and feeling, as he described it. And he kept exploring Christian themes even more explicitly on his next album, Slow Train Coming, in 1979. It was so overtly spiritual that he almost gave the songs to his new backup singer, who was so steeped in the church and in gospel music, to record for herself. As he got to know her, Carolyn became real to him in a world that seemed like a dream of a dream. She was completely unfamiliar with what was already the legend of Dylan, and was uninterested in him as an icon, because to her, well, he wasn't one. As an uncompromising artist who lived and breathed music, however, he was a compelling figure, and he was obviously a big deal. Carolyn could see that. He was the star everyone wanted to orbit. That was part of it, too. To Dylan, Carolyn was not only a great talent, but as a Christian, she was already where he wanted to be, in the light of God, a child of Jesus, saved. Saved. 
But she arrived in that particular solar system to find she had competition. There was another backup singer working with Dylan and even co-wrote some songs with him during that period. A woman named Helena Springs. She and Carolyn were the only two members of Dylan's previous touring band to carry over onto Slow Train Coming. Helena was their first, you might say. That is, both in the band and with Dylan. In fact, Carolyn only arrived on the scene because one of the previous singers, Debbie Di Gibson, had been unable to stomach first Helena's singing and then her personality. As a singer, she was a hell of a dancer, Debbie said of Helena. Debbie split the tour after the first leg. An apparent victory for Helena, but a short-lived one. The truth was that the newly single Dylan was involved with several women during those years. He wasn't trying to hide it. It wasn't long before he took an interest in Carolyn. This caused some friction. Joanne, you stand in the middle tonight, Dylan told third backing singer Joanne Harris before one show. Harris, who had always stood on the end of the line of singers, protested, knowing what he was doing. Dylan wanted her to be the no man's land between Helena and Carolyn. No, you stand in the middle, he repeated. Oh no, am I going to get my hair ripped out? She worried silently. She came close but managed to keep the women from knocking down and dragging out in front of thousands of people while still keeping her bouffant intact. Carolyn, who demanded little of Dylan and was never the instigator of this drama, became the favorite girlfriend, though he was still not about to commit himself with any seriousness to any of them. Helena stayed on through the recording of Slow Train Coming, She and Carolyn put aside the animosity, avoiding any further confrontations. Dylan and Carolyn's relationship continued this way for a time, off and on. She had her own relationships and a brief marriage that produced her first child, but they had a mutual respect. They talked music, gospel, religion. It was all of a piece for both of them. She worked for him over the next few years, a rare thing for any musician in the Dylan orbit. He even brought in Carolyn's mother, Madeline, and another Raylette, Clytie King, to sing on 1981's Shot of Love. True to form, Dylan took up with Clytie King, but Carolyn didn't care. By 1985, though, they were seeing each other again, still not exclusively. Carolyn made him feel comfortable, a friend, For a guy who didn't have too many of them, that was a valuable thing. Part of the appeal was that she never idolized him. She worshipped God, but she didn't worship him as a god, like so many others seemed to. Her faith was inspiring to him. So was her talent. He craved inspiration. Look at them sitting backstage at rehearsals for Farm Aid in 1985. Dylan smokes a joint as he ambles over to sit with his singers. Carolyn just smiles off to the side, utterly relaxed. She'd sung for Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Wonder. She'd just been on Broadway in Big River. They performed together at that show, with her mother on stage duetting with her future son-in-law. 
Carolyn was a stabilizing force, but not a pushy one. She didn't demand anything from him, not even about religion. Everyone in Dylan's life was looking for something, waiting for an answer, maybe the answer, expecting him to mumble something profound and revelatory, maybe show them some kind of light. She wasn't looking for anything and didn't press him to either. Dylan's public evangelizing had subsided, and he was again more or less a secular rock star, at least to the public. Preacher Dylan had vanished. Are you still a believer? Carolyn asked. She'd noticed a Bible in his luggage as he packed to move on to another tour stop. She was curious. The rumor was that he'd reverted to Judaism. I believe the whole Bible, he replied simply. Carolyn didn't push. She just understood. She understood that Bob Dylan was, more than anything, a seeker. A man looking for meaning. Some answers, most answers, just go beyond easy categorization. She didn't expect that he could renounce Christianity any more than he could his Jewish faith and culture. His answer seemed complete to me, she reflected. Bob never denied being Jewish nor has he ever denied being a Christian to me. A reporter at the press conference in Sydney, Australia asked, your songs have shown remarkable insight into women. What importance do women in your life have? Oh, I couldn't live without them, Dylan smiled. He was feeling especially warm toward the women in his life on this day. Less than two weeks earlier, on January 31st, 1986, Carolyn Dennis had given birth to his daughter, Desiree. Every Dylan fan knows his son, Jacob, singer for the Wallflowers and solo artist. A lot of them also know Jesse, an Emmy award-winning director. Dylan had two more kids with Sarah, Sam, and Anna, and he adopted Sarah's first daughter, Maria, too. He was said to be a family man despite it all. For years, though, Almost nobody knew about Desiree Gabrielle Dennis Dillon at all, who came along 17 years after the birth of Jacob. The birth certificate named Robert Dillon as the father, but he and Carolyn went to some lengths to keep the record sealed and her existence as his daughter private. They didn't even give her his last name originally, deciding she could make that decision for herself when she was old enough. There were no media announcements, no publicist-directed, glossy color spread in People magazine, not even any gossip, nothing. Considering Dylan's level of fame in this era of classic rock, 60s fetishized boomer dominance, it's kind of a miracle. The chance for a normal life, that's all they wanted for the kid. Normal in Bob Dylan-adjusted terms, of course. His other kids had done all right, but the world had changed. He had stalkers, obsessed fans. That shit was scary. Carolyn had seen it up close. At one point, his security had a list with the names of over 500 people considered a safety threat. A few days after Desiree was born, he left for New Zealand. It was there he began a huge tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as his opening act and backing band. He thought about Carolyn a lot, about what to do. Dylan was a Midwestern guy at heart, 
with solid family values ingrained by his parents. He wanted Desiree to have not only privacy, but also a stable home life. Maybe he wanted that for himself too, when he wasn't on the road anyway. On June 4th, 1986, a few months after Desiree was born, Carolyn married Bob Dylan. The certificate was filed in LA as a confidential marriage. The small handful of Dylan friends who knew were sworn to secrecy, and Carolyn wouldn't talk. Mr. Dylan is a very private person, was her line. Dylan, meanwhile, continued to see other women, stability being worth only so much personal sacrifice. You know, gotta serve somebody. Carolyn was no fool. She understood who her new husband was. Complicated, temperamental. She toured the world with this guy. And usually what happens on the road stays on the road. That is, unless your future wife happens to be observing it all. And after all, she'd gotten involved with him while he was already involved with at least a couple of other women. And she was practical. She loved him. And she knew he loved her. He was the father of her daughter. It was a good deal down on the bottom line, and everything else was just noise to her. She'd adopted a lot of Dylan's world-weary, often cynical worldview, and wasn't about to play by anyone else's rules. It's not like she was a housewife waiting up, wondering where her husband was. He was 20 feet in front of her with the spotlight on him. She kept singing back up with him, and so did her mother, Madeline, while Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers opened up their sets. They were all done up in sequence, all those backup girls. They were called his queens of rhythm, and Carolyn helped him to find new singers. He knew that I'd basically bring in what he was after, people that could go after a feeling, but it wasn't so much standing there with the music and trying to prove how perfectly you could sing, but people who had a story in their voices. When they sang, there was a feeling there. The feeling comes from life experiences, and that's what he was after. He wanted his show to have that kind of spontaneous, spiritual type of feeling to it. What she was looking for, only on Dylan's behalf, in other words, was herself. Carolyn protected him, and the queens kept him grounded. These weren't young sidemen off on their own trip, like the band's leader, Robbie Robertson, or their doomed keyboardist, Richard Manuel, who'd just taken his own life in a Florida motel room, sending Dylan into midlife introspection, if not crisis. No, these ladies were tough. They could see the guy needed support, with someone always trying to get something from him, with enormous pressure on him. They offered him comfort when he needed it. When he went to make his next album, Knocked Out Loaded, he was struggling. Writer's block. Carolyn helped him with lyrics, though she's not directly credited as a songwriter alongside names like Sam Shepard and Tom Petty. And her voice is prominent on easily the best track, Brownsville Girl. This is not a great record, unfocused and brittle sounding, part of a mid-career slump. But Dylan and Carolyn were happy in their life together, despite his creative block. Desiree is thanked in the liner notes, 
slipped in amidst mystery characters like Gal shaped just like a frog and Baby Boo Boo. He put his wife and daughter up in Tarzana, one of those beige, well-groomed San Fernando suburbs where faded stars clinging to Hollywood's outskirts can seep into anonymity. They lived in a fenced bungalow on Shirley Avenue, five bedrooms, kidney pool, high bushes, and iron gates, in the shadow of the Ventura Freeway, financed through a shell corporation. He was also paying for another home, this one in Beverly Hills, for a long-term girlfriend. Nobody knew about either one. Dylan's career was a mess, and after another flop album, he was getting despondent, with no direction and no commercial reward to make up for the lack of inspiration. Then came the Traveling Wilburys, a supergroup made up of some of his notable friends, including Tom Petty, George Harrison, and Roy Orbison, and they had a huge hit with their debut album in 1988. He followed this with the solo success of Oh Mercy. But he was drinking heavily. People could tell. A much-anticipated tour with the Grateful Dead was a shambles. Carolyn obviously wasn't on that one. No soul singers in the Dead. And then Dylan stopped using backing singers in his own band. With two kids to care for, she stayed off the road. Neither of them had known just how much the relationship hinged on their creative collaboration. Dylan was lonely, and Carolyn was lonelier. An anonymous bungalow deep in the valley was a world away, often literally, from Dylan's day-to-day life. In 1990, she filed for divorce. The low-pressure nature of the marriage was good for Dylan, who had the freedom he wanted, but it made it easy for Carolyn to walk away when things weren't working. There was a multi-million dollar settlement, including the house. The court records list him as R. Zimmerman. Carolyn worried more for him than for herself. She'd known since Desiree was born that they'd be all right. Bob Dylan is an insular character, remote and, yeah, unfaithful. But he was honest with her. He took care of her beyond what she ever expected. She wasn't hustling him or feeding on fame. She didn't need or want the limelight, and she kept their business private. The one thing about her that I always loved, Dylan wrote in his memoir, was that she was never one of those people who thinks that someone else is the answer to their happiness, me or anybody else. She always had her own built-in happiness. I valued her opinion and I trusted her. When the Dylan biography, Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan, came out in 2001, it revealed the marriage for the first time, with author Howard Soons doing some detective work in the public records. A wave of tabloid speculation followed. Bob Dylan's troubled home life, his secret marriage, his clandestine child. Why, everyone wanted to know, had it been a secret at all? A person of Bob Dylan's high profile keeping a secret of this magnitude inevitably raised a question, whether uttered in public or private, was this part of Dylan's family hidden because of their race? 
A seemingly simple question, but one loaded with complex meaning, history, and projection. Perhaps there wouldn't have been so much shaded conjecture if the circumstances of their lives together had come out simultaneously with the essential secret itself, a white celebrity and his secret black daughter. It called to mind ugly patterns of power and subjugation, not so far removed in American history. But of course, Bob wasn't talking. Anyone who knew him knew he had faults, but what ultimately boiled down to racism was not one of them. He wouldn't justify the insinuation by addressing it. So Carolyn finally issued a brief statement. Bob and I made a simple choice to keep our marriage a private matter for a simple reason. To give our daughter a normal childhood. To portray Bob as hiding his daughter is just ridiculous and malicious. That is something he would never do. Bob has been a wonderful, active father to Desiree. Desi Dennis Dillon, as she's known now, is grown up. Like her parents, she's a talented musician, a damn good singer. Also like her parents, she guards her privacy. From all appearances, she's well-adjusted, happy, not some tortured Hollywood kid working out her issues in public. A normal life. This is Instagram, so who knows, but in her photos, she has a big grin. She says she's a big fan of music, big fan of laughter, big fan of kindness. Then, no surprise, a nod to Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. And underneath her name, you don't need anyone's approval. You just have to be unstoppable. She is her parents' daughter. On his 80th birthday in 2021, Desi wrote, He's my favorite writer, one of my favorite storytellers. He and my mom are tied for first place. My favorite person to make laugh. One of the most brilliant yet most humble men I've ever known. And this world is quite lucky to have him. Simply put, I know my dad means a lot to a lot of people. But he means everything to me. Happy birthday, dad. I love you. But if you want to know more about Carolyn, that's a lot tougher. Bob Dylan met his match when it comes to staying private. The best you could do to know her is to listen to her sing. The gospel songs, the covers, like when she appeared on Natalie Cole's show in 1990. Powder blue gown, miniskirt, and white tights, wide shoulder pads, big hair, red lips, booming contralto. She sings Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water with a passion and drama that art could only dream of. Amazing to think that at this point she's still legally married to Dylan and has toured with him, sang with Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, Springsteen, and has touched that flame of fame. But with all of it stripped away, Carolyn is a singer, a commanding voice that tells her story, and she delivers. What we know for sure about Bob Dylan, behind the imagery, the personas, the signs and symbols, the impatience and moodiness, the fucking what you were at play, is that he's a brilliant performer and writer. A genius, the first musician to be awarded a Nobel Prize for Literature, along with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, an Oscar, a Golden Globe, and of course, many Grammys. 
He's the archetype of a rock star, one of the greatest cultural figures of the last hundred years. And yes, an incredible singer. Don't at me. But this is not about him. This is about Carolyn Dennis, a humble girl from Missouri whose voice alone contains multitudes and whose talent took her to the biggest stages in the world. This is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Kara Baskin. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz, Matt Tahaney, and Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.